Welcome to the New Beginnings Community Church Podcast. Here at NBCC, we welcome the imperfect, flawed, and broken, as much as the healing and thriving, because we are all God's children. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. Well, good morning, everybody. Okay, let me try it again. Good morning, everybody. All right, I like excitement. Well, today we're going to talk about how do I know that Jesus rose from the dead? Which is a big question that we need to be able to answer if people ask us such a question, correct? Now, I want to point you to next Sunday in our series, this series on answers. Next Sunday I'm going to talk about, you know, what do we do when people tell us, don't all roads lead to God? How come you Christians say that your way is the way? I mean, how, how can you come to that conclusion? So we're going to deal with that next week. And then the week after that, we're going to talk about how, you know, why doesn't a loving God do something about evil and suffering in this world? Because that's another thing that's going to be pointed at us, and we need to be able to answer those types of questions. Now, before I say this, let me say this. Um, we're going to start, as you saw in the um, announcements, we're going to start our verse-by-verse study on Tuesday nights a week from Tuesday. I'll be teaching that. I was teaching it online for a couple, I don't know, three years. But now I figured, well, if I'm teaching it online, I might as well ship teach it in person. So it'll be every Tuesday night in here at 7 o'clock. And it's not for kids because we're going to be filming it, videoing it, so you can post the next day. But if you want to come to an actual Bible study, I'm going to be teaching through the Gospel of John. And so this is designed for you to grow in the Word of God. And you learn more. You grow in your faith. You can defend your faith because we want to build Christians into, in, with a solid foundation. Amen to that one? So it's for guys, gals, teenagers, it's, it's for all of you right there, but no, no little kids. Now, <clears throat> today, uh, as we look at how do I know that Jesus rose from the dead? Last week, I talked about how do we know that God exists? And we looked at it first briefly, because I did it the year before, the cosmological argument, because science has now proven that uh, the universe as we see it, it began at a certain moment in time. There was once nothing. I mean, absolutely nothing. And then boom, whatever you want to call it, then the universe began. And science, not Christians, but scientists have now proven that the universe did have a moment in time where it began. The idea is that if you could take videotape and go back in time throughout the universe... The universe would shrink down, shrink down, shrink down, shrink down, not to a basketball, not to a bowling ball, not to a ping pong ball, not to the pinhead, but to nothing. And then, boom, and then it started. And as the universe expands, there's nothing on the other side. Um, The universe creates its own space as it goes. That's a crazy thought in and of itself. Amen? Now, so they've proven there there is some kind of creator that this thing began. So it had to be a, a timeless, spaceless, all-powerful with the mind, we call that God, right? That's the cosmological argument. Anything that had a beginning had a cause. The universe had a beginning. Therefore, the universe had a cause, and we say that is God. Now, I I didn't go into that last week because I did it the year before. Last Sunday, I talked about the teleological argument, and that tell us it's design, it's the argument by design. That if you look at everything in this universe, you realize, and it doesn't take much looking, that this universe is finely tuned 
for life for us humans on this planet. Amen? That it wasn't a mindless, unguided, through random processes universe that did this, and all of a sudden everything's so finely tuned for life. And one of the biggest evidences I gave last week, among many, and you can read more and more on this kind of stuff, is just DNA. You look at DNA. I mean, you look on the screen right here, and you see the word answers? You assume, because you're smart and you're logical, that because that says answers, somebody put that together. A mind did that, did they not? Yet, when they look at DNA, and you have 36, 37 trillion cells in your body, and every one of those cells, they've now discovered, has 3.4 or 3.5 billion letter code. It's four letters, but it's a code of 3.4, 3.5 billion letters long. It's information. And it dictates who you are, what you are, and everything. They look at that code and they say, Ah, oh, no, that's evolution. That's random processes. That's a, a, a mindless, unguided universe. But yet you look at the word answers, they go, Oh, yeah, a mind did that. See, it doesn't make sense, does it? Logic says, when you look at DNA, you realize there had to be this immaterial, this timeless, this all-powerful, this mind we call God that created all these things. Amen? Now, you take just that right there. Because people, when it comes to the resurrection, people say, well, I don't know how that could happen. Well, let's go back to the God argument. If God could create everything we see from nothing, bang, is that a lot of power? That's enough power to bring back somebody from the dead, is it not? Yeah, so now I got a question for you. I had questions last week, didn't I? Remember that? So I have a question now. Here's my, and don't give me five minutes of answer, okay? I'm the, I'm the teacher, all right? I just got to set that straight. But raise your hand, you tell me. Because we're called to be able to defend this thing. If somebody said to you, how do you know that Jesus rose from the dead? How would you answer? Raise your hand, briefly tell me. How would you answer that? Somebody raise your hand. Back there. God's word. God's word. God's word. Okay, hold that thought there. What else? Right there, Cal. The witnesses, the eyewitnesses to the event. What else? Right there. The, the, absolutely, the change in the witnesses. Their lives dramatically changed. What else? Because the Bible tells me so. It's in God's word. Okay. There's an empty tomb. That's right. There's historical evidence for that. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. You got a lot of good answers there. Now, let me just say, and I'm not trying to be negative towards you, be negative towards you, but some people will tell us as Christians, I don't believe in the Bible. So then you got to think about that now. So you got to think about these kinds of answers. Now, I will use the Bible to share it, and then I'll take things outside of that to try to prove these things. So I want you to be ready to answer the questions. Now, I'm going to give you a free one right now. When someone says, as they've shared with me, I don't believe that a man could rise from the dead. Now think of that statement. I do not believe that a man could rise from the dead. Now how I would say, I would say to them is this, I'd say, neither do I. I don't believe a man could rise from the dead. But I do believe a God-man could rise from the dead. See, there's a big difference between the two. A man can't rise from the dead on his own, but a God-man can rise from the dead. And looking at the evidence for God, well, you know, the power is there that created the universe. And so today, we're going to look at this idea or answer the question, how do I know? 
How do I know if somebody asks me, Jesus rose from the dead? Guys, you know why you're sitting here in this room worshiping God and learning the word of God? Because you believe in the resurrection, do you not? Your entire Christianity is based on one event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If that didn't happen, then this is just an exercise in futility. I've been tithing for 42 years. I've been throwing my money away then. If he didn't rise from the dead. And so to be able to answer the question is really important. I've got to be able to give a defense. Now, the verse that we've been looking at in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, up on the screen, please. I want you to read it with me. I want everyone to read it. It's a big verse. Peter wrote this, one of the 12. Here we go, one, two, three. But sanctify Christ always to make a to everyone to give an account for the hope that is in you yet with gentleness and reverence now the very end of it is saying look don't get into shouting matches over this stuff don't get all hot and angry just stay calm and be able to share now let's break it down again this verse we already dialogued in second service last week why anyone would ever ask you a question about your Christianity because why? they see a change in you they see something different amen they see that you at work you don't tell dirty jokes you don't even laugh at dirty jokes you're not gossiping about co-workers you're not talking about the boss negatively you're not doing your worst work possible you're doing your best work possible you're a moral person you're, you're doing just the right stuff and eventually they see something different in you and they're going to ask you some questions. You might even bring a little Bible to work, not your phone, because they're, they're going to think you're reading articles. I would say bring a little Bible. And at lunchtime, pull it out and just read. Show them something, because you want them to ask you a question. It's very important they start asking questions, because it says, whoever asks you. Now, he says, when they ask you, he says, now you've got to make a defense. And the word defense, apologia in the Greek, we get our word apologetics. It just means to give an answer. You're going to answer the questions of people. I think the most important part of that verse is the, is the part where he says, in the beginning, but sanctify Christ the Lord in your hearts. Now, why is that important? I better settle it that I believe in Jesus, right? I better settle it that I believe in the resurrection. I better not be a person that when life goes sideways, and how many has had life go sideways on them like I have? When life goes sideways, that's where your faith should shine, should it not? When Jesus was on the cross crucified, he shined, did he not? That changed a centurion there on the ground going, oh my gosh, this has got to be real. He shined. When the Spirit led Jesus into the desert to be tempted by the devil, he didn't take him in there to do him in, he took him in there to show him off, did he not? You go down to the Dodge dealership and you want to drive one of the Challenger, the Hellcats, right? Does the guy tell you, just take, keep it at 30 miles an hour? No, he says, put it, let's go on the freeway, put the pedal to the metal. He's going to get you to buy it, right? He's going to show that thing off. That's when you and I should shine. When life is sideways, we should shine. Our faith should be so obvious to people, they're going, what is different about this person? And then they're going to ask you questions because you've settled it. But if you have not settled it in your heart, you haven't sanctified the Lord, 
and you start getting into debates or dialogues with people, then you'll be talked into anything. And you'll be talked out of your faith. And you'll be talked into all kinds of blending and secretism of faith. You don't want to do that because now you'll be what James, the brother of Jesus, calls a double-minded man, unstable in every way in life, all over the place. So we want to be solid in what we believe. And so this series is helping us to be solid in what we believe so that we're not talked in and out of things. And no matter what happens to us, because guess what? Every one of us has been sinned against. Every one of us has bad things happen to us. Every one of us has suffered catastrophe. And we will probably happen to us again in the future. And we cannot be shaken by these things. Because it's the anchor of our soul, Jesus Christ, and the resurrection from the dead that keeps us firm in the midst of everything. Amen to that one? So, you want to sanctify them in your heart. I think that's huge. Now, as we dive in today, um, as I said last week, I'll say it again, but for this one, a year ago, uh, at the end of March, <coughs> and the first Sunday in April, which was Easter last year, this year Easter is late, I think it's the 17th of April, um, I, I did a series called the Easter Anthology. And I talked about how the existence of God, then therefore, if because God exists, you can have miracles, and because you can have miracles, you can have a resurrection. And last year when I proved the resurrection, I, I used what's called the minimal facts argument. I didn't come up with it. I wish I did. But I study the foremost teachers in the world on the resurrection. I like to read their books. And so a guy by the name of Gary Habermas, he's the one that I've taken all these things I've learned so much from. I have his book, the one I like. Now there's Gary Habermas, he's the foremost in the world. And right, in fact, right now he's working on his magnum opus, it's like 5,000 pages on the resurrection. Because he's older now, he wants to make sure he leaves this thing behind. But you have like William Lane Craig, you have Frank Turk, you have Lee Strobel, they're all good people. But this, zoom in for me, Xavier. This book, if you guys want more study, this book right here, it's called The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus by Gary Habermas and Michael Lincrona. Lincona are the authors of it. This covers so much territory. And I would advise you, if this is something you want to grow in and learn more about, this is a book, this is a great book to get. It's one of many books I have on the subject. If you didn't catch it, couldn't take a picture, come up afterwards, I'll have it here but it covers minimal facts and it covers a wide variety of things. So just want to give you that right there. So what I want to do today first, and just quickly, I want to take you through four of the minimal facts. There's more, not many more. I think there's nine total minimal facts, but I want to zip through four of them because then I want to get into the objections. What I didn't cover last year are the objections to the resurrection. So, because I'm trying to give you a wide range of how to answer the questions. So the minimal facts, here are four of them. And the first minimal fact that, and by the way, when I say minimal facts and why Gary Habermas would say minimal facts, it's because not bloggers, scholars don't listen to bloggers. Don't listen to bloggers, please, okay? They, they, they've never published papers. They're not, they're not schooled in these things. But all of your, 90-some percent of your evangelical, skeptic, and atheist New Testament scholars, including Bart Ehrman, of University of North Carolina. Um, he's the foremost atheist New Testament scholar in the world. But they all agree on these statements here. They all agree. They're all, they're all going to agree on it. Now, the skeptic and atheist scholars like a Bart Ehrman, he will not believe 
that Jesus rose from the dead, he will just admit that the disciples believed they saw a resurrected Jesus. But he won't go that far, neither will the skeptics. But they all agree on this stuff. And here's, here's four of the minimal facts on the approach on defending the faith. If you're taking from a Christian perspective, Gary Habermas, the first one is the disciples believed Jesus rose and appeared to them. Notice the disciples believed. Now, we know that they saw him, but the atheist skeptic doesn't believe they really saw him. But they did, uh, they did believe that they saw Jesus rise from the dead. So now we have eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses, and we have an empty tomb. The second one I want to put forth today is that Paul, a persecutor of the church, was suddenly changed. Somebody said, I think it was you, Jordan, you said that people's lives were changed, correct? Yes, and this is one of the greatest evidences of the resurrection of Christ. Paul, hater of Christians, persecutor of Christians, and all of a sudden, this guy changed. It's a historical fact. So that's another evidence. And then, fact number three, James, the brother of Jesus, was suddenly changed. Now that's crazy because how many of you have a brother? How many have a brother in this room? Anybody have a brother in this room? Raise your hand. You have a brother in this room? Right now? They're in this room? Where? Are oh, no, I'm in this room. Anybody have a brother in this room? You have a bro- Where's your brother? Right here? That's your brother? What would it take for you to believe that guy's the Messiah, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh? And you're like, oh, no, no way. I'll ask you, what would it take for you to believe that guy's Jesus Christ, God in the flesh? Yeah, you believe that or no? Okay, no, okay. No, you're not going to believe that, are you? But James, who's the half-brother of Jesus, he believes that Jesus, his brother, is the Messiah, God in the flesh. Why is that? Well, because the only answer is he saw the resurrected Jesus Christ. And Josephus, a first century historian, also writes that James, the brother of Jesus, was stoned to death. He was martyred for his belief that his brother was God in the flesh. Now you say, well, of course. No, but wait, back up in the Gospels. James and the family one day came to try to get Jesus because they thought what? He's out of his mind. Our brother's lost his marbles. He's insane. We got to get this guy, bring him home. We got to nurse his mind back to health. So they didn't believe it. So that's a big one right there. And then of course, fact number four is the testimony of women. Now why is that a big deal? All four gospels, which were written in different parts of the Mediterranean, all four of them state that women were the first eyewitnesses, therefore the first evangelists of the, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were the ones at the tomb. They were the ones who came to the tomb that first Easter morning. Why is that a big deal? Because in Jewish and Roman cultures in that day, the testimony of women, they just didn't give it much weight. They wouldn't bring that into a court. They wouldn't let a woman in. That's the way the culture was. They didn't trust it whatsoever. And yet... The Gospels, their, uh, their, their found, one of their biggest foundations is the testimony of women. Now, that's called in historical circles the criteria of embarrassment. You would never, ever, ever write this down unless it were true because it's just too embarrassing. And so that's another one on the minimal facts approach right there. So with that said, let's get into this whole idea of answering objections because there's more minimal facts. If you get that book, you'll see all the minimal facts right there. But let's talk about objections today, okay? Because you may run into these, you may not. And I just want to give you a preparation just in case. Now, objection number one, and that's this. Uh, They say, some people say, Jesus did not resurrect. The disciples stole the body. 
Now, if you have a Bible or whatever you have, turn to Matthew chapter 28. Go to Matthew 28, please. Matthew chapter 28, we're going to look at verses 11 uh, through 14. When you're in Matthew 28, say, I'm there. Okay, you're not there. Now, <coughs> before I begin on this here, let me state this. If you're a note-taker, you want to investigate more, write this down. Write the Nazareth inscription. The Nazareth inscription. This is something, this is a marble stone that, you know, it was, there was an edict on there from a Caesar. They, um, it was discovered, I think, 1870s. And on here, a Caesar gave an edict in the Roman Empire that said that the punishment for anyone tampering with graves or tombs was death. And they found this. Isn't that cool? So you die if you go steal a body. And yet they're saying that the, that the disciples stole the body. Now, we'll, let, let's, let's answer this objection. Let's look at Matthew 28, 11 through 14, and it says this. Now, while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests and all that, all that had happened. So they're saying, hey, this all happened. The tomb's empty and stuff like that. Verse 12. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers. They're going to pay off the soldiers to keep their mouth shut. And said, you are to say, here's what you tell people if they ask about that empty tomb. His disciples came by night and stole them away while we were asleep. First question, how do you know they stole the body if you were asleep. Any amens? Okay, good. Um, verse 14. And if this should come to the governor's ears, to Pilate, we will win him over. You know why they say that? Because these guards could be killed for not doing their job. And if you know anything about how the Roman soldiers would position themselves in front of the tomb, there's just no way anybody could have got by there without waking these guys up. It would have been bad. We'll win him over and keep you out of trouble. Now, look at those verses, Bible students, and tell me what the enemies of Jesus are testifying to. What fact? What are they testifying to? What fact? Raise your hand. Somebody... The tomb's empty, right? The enemies are saying, the tomb's empty. Did you catch that? Not the disciples. The enemies of Jesus are saying, the tomb is empty. Isn't that great? So now we find that this is called enemy attestation. In historical circles, this is a huge thing that the enemies are saying that this is a fact. Now, let's dig deeper into this because they're saying the disciples stole the body. If the disciples stole the body, that means the disciples know there is no resurrection. Correct? Correct. Okay, so if they, if they stole the body, this is hypothetical now, how then were their lives radically transformed? Why then would they risk life, limb, torture, imprisonment, and they're not white-collar prisons back then, and martyrdom, why would they risk all that if they stole the body? Is that logical? Does that make any sense? 
It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Now, I'm going to play the devil's advocate now because this question may come at you. Somebody may say, okay, what about those 9-11 religious fanatics, religious fanatics, because they always try to put us in there, right? Right? You ever notice on TV how they make us look ridiculous? Has anyone ever noticed that before? They make us into weird, ridiculous people. I'm thinking, we're more normal than the people on TV. But, but they say, these, they were religious, and they flew those planes in there in the name of God and their faith, and they killed all those people. Didn't they? What's the difference between them and, and you? Okay. They died. These guys died. What's the difference? Here's the difference. Here's what you say. The people who did that flew the, the planes in there. They died for what they believed, what somebody told them. The disciples, they risked death, torture, imprisonment over what they saw. They saw him. Because if they didn't see him, then they would have bailed out quickly, would they not? Would they not? Question. Would a made-up resurrection convince Paul? Would it? Would a made-up resurrection convince James, Jesus' half-brother? There's just no way. Uh Uh-uh. Do you know that if you read the resurrection account when the disciples remember the story when Mary comes back the tomb's empty Jesus is alive remember that story and then John and Peter go running to the tomb remember that and Peter takes off running fast and then he starts slowing down we assume because he's feeling guilty right and then John shoots by him and they get to the tomb and John gets to the tomb first he looks inside if you read the Greek on what their mind is thinking and how they the word belief there John is the one who looked in there, saw the empty tomb, saw the linen wrappings, and he believed. Peter, he gets there, looks in, and he's still skeptical. It's, he's not a believer yet. He's not quite there yet. Do you know that none... See, John got there, he said, now I believe in the resurrection. Back up. Do you know that none, none, let me say it again, none of the apostles not a one of them believed that Jesus was going to rise from the dead what were they doing for three days they were hiding they were afraid they're going to come and get us next because we're followers they didn't believe in any of it nobody believed there would be no body in the tomb nobody did and so you're going to, somebody's going to tell me that oh the disciples came and stole the body they overthrew the Romans at the door there and they didn't even believe it they were terrified and so this objection doesn't hold water. It doesn't hold water whatsoever. Let's go to another one. This one's kind of funky to me, but I got to say it anyway, okay? Objection number two. The women and the disciples went to the wrong tomb. Oh, look, it's empty. They, uh, they went to the wrong tomb. Now, wait a minute. Let's read on. Let's read whose tomb it was. Matthew 27, verse 57 through 60. Now, watch this. When it, when it was evening, there came a rich man from, say it, Arimathea, (coughs) named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. Don't miss that. This guy is a high-ranking member of the high court, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, man. This is big. This is huge. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. 
Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his, in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. Now they say, well, they went to the wrong tomb. They just didn't know. Question, whose tomb was it again? Who's, whose tomb? Is he a well-known guy? Is he a well, well-known guy? Is Jerusalem a huge city? Say no. They all know where the tomb is. They know whose tomb it is. They know everything about this place. And you're going to tell me they went to the wrong tomb? How many know that's impossible? It's an impossibility. They never went to the wrong tomb at all. Now, objection number three. This one's... Okay, I'll just say it. Okay. The apparent death theory. Now, let, let me explain this one, okay? <clears throat> the apparent death theory. They say, Jesus didn't die on the cross. What do you mean he didn't die on the cross? No, the guards got it wrong. They thought he died. And so, they take him down because they think he's dead. But he's in a coma. They take Jesus' body. They wrap it up and they put it in the tomb. They roll the stone, 2,000 pound stone. He's in there for three days. While he's in there, he comes to. And he recuperates in three days. And he, with all of his strength, rolls the stone. He comes out and walks 500 yards or whatever to wherever there and shows them, hey, I'm alive, guys. Why does that make no sense? Let me tell you why. Have you ever read up what happens to a crucified person? Have you ever read of what, what a crucifixion entails? They take Jesus, they strap him over a wooden thing, and he's, and he's hooked on, and he's like this, he can't move. And his whole, he's naked, his back's exposed. And the Romans are whipping him and whipping him and whipping him. Not 40 times, that's what the Jews would do. And every one of these leather tongs on the whip, they had a little piece of bone and stuff in there. And as they'd whip, it would grip the skin and rip it. And as they're whipping up and down his back, eventually, the back, his back starts to hang like ribbons of skin. Now you can peer into his back. You can see all of his organs. This is what would happen. When they're done, when a man was almost dead but not quite, to revive him, they take salt water, throw it on the wounds. Can you imagine? Waking him up. Jesus is bleeding profusely. They say, get up. They put, well, first they put the, the robe on him and it coagulates a bit on him and then they rip it off, opening any wound again. Then they have him take that wooden beam. He's got to walk 600 yards uphill. He can't make it because he, he's dying. Simon of Cyrene is pressed into service. He's got to help him carry it. They get to the place of crucifixion, Golgotha. They throw him to the ground. As he hits the ground, the back opens up again because he hits the ground. They nail him to the beam. They hook him up, put him up there, and for six hours, from 9 a.m. to 3 a.m., he's pushing up, lifting up, and he's dropping down to be able to breathe. Inhale, exhale. And his back is being opened up more and more as it rubs against there. And he's bleeding, and he's dying, and he's dying. And he finally, he dies. But they say he did die. Now think about that. They took him off the cross. They put him in the tomb. 
And after all that torture and suffering and everything, in three days later, he recuperates? So much so that he can roll that stone away? And he walks 500 yards or whatever to, hey, here I am, everybody, I've resurrected. That's impossible. If that happened today, the best, they'd have to rush him to the best hospital we got. He'd be in the ICU for months just to try to make it. And then after that, they'd have to send him to rehabilitation, right? But there's, oh no, three days later, he's shown himself. He would have walked, if, this even, if he even could have got out of there, well, he would have said, hey guys, I'm back. Ah, and he would have collapsed. That's an impossibility. There's just no way that he did not, he died. He died, and then he resurrected in that resurrected body. Now, the fourth one is this one. Here's another objection here. It was mass hallucination. They were all, everybody was just hypnosis. They're all hallucinating. Now, here's the problem with that. We now know that hallucinations are like dreams. Now, if I was, let's say about two in the morning this morning, I woke up and I had this dream that, you know, I was, um, I was in Hawaii or whatever. Um, and um, I go, Olivia, wake up, wake up. And I, I had this dream. You were with me in Hawaii on the beach. We're having a great time. Fall back to sleep and join me in my dream. Is that possible? It's not, because dreams are exclusive just to you, right? So are hallucinations. So that disproves the hallucination theory. No, it's exclusive. It's just you. You can't share in this common hallucination or dream. Now, the fifth one is this one. And this is a big one, guys. The fifth one is the dead bodies were not taken down but left to rot on the cross. Can I tell you that's true? So I'm going to go and tell you that and you can't say that's not true. It is true. That the Romans would leave the dead bodies on the cross. They would not be taken down and they'd let the birds of prey come and start picking at them day after day after day until there's nothing left but the bones. That's true. So what do we do with that? Well, <clears throat> something happened in 1968. They were doing excavations around Jerusalem and they came upon the bones of a crucified man. Interesting. His name was Yehohanan. And they know he was crucified because the nail was still in, in the ankle. And his bones were inside an ossuary box. The ossuary box is very telling because what that means is that family members or friends or somebody were allowed to take this man's body down off the cross and what they would do then is they would take him and they'd wrap him in strips of cloth, cover him in spices for the stuff, put him in the tomb, roll the stone. They'd go one year, two years. Later, they'd come back when the body is now bones. They would take the bones and they'd put them in what's called these ossuary boxes. They have found other ossuary boxes of well-known New Testament people. Archaeology keeps proving this stuff. They found this, and so they excavated this man's ossuary box. Just they happened to find it. And in there, there he is. He's a crucified victim. Proving that they did allow some people to be taken down off the cross. I have read other scholars and historians say that in certain cases, they would allow family members to take their family member off the cross instead of just leaving them up there for them to be picked at and picked at and picked at. 
Now let me give you one more. Not in your notes. Because somebody's going to tell me, Jim, it's the gospel writers. They're all biased. Of course they're going to say these things. Okay. What I would say to that is this. What about Paul? Is Paul in the Gospels? Paul's outside the Gospels. Paul's not in the Gospels. Paul was the antagonizer of Christianity. He was the hater. He was the murderer of Christians. That was his job. He's outside the Gospels. So there's no bias there. And this once persecutor of the church, he has an encounter with the risen Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 9, we read about it. And he turns into a preacher of the gospel. It changes dramatically. And here is what he writes, among many other things, about the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, I'm going to read verses 3 through 8. It'll be on the screen. You can turn there as you're turning. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance. In other words, what I'm telling you now is the most important thing. This is the most important thing. What I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Now, what you just read there is what's called an ancient creed. This is something that was verbally passed around to the early followers of Christ. Many people couldn't read, so they would develop these creeds, these statements. So these verbal statements predate the written scriptures, but it's inserted in here. There are other creeds in the New Testament. This is one of them. Um, verse 5. Watch what he reads on. And that he, Jesus, appeared to Cephas. Cephas is Peter. This is Paul talking about it. Then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time most of whom remain until now but some have fallen asleep meaning some have died then he appeared to James he's talking about Jesus' brother then to all the apostles and then he says this and last of all as to one untimely born he appeared to me also this hater of Christians in a high-level position in society, super-religious, trying to stomp out this new movement following this guy called Jesus. He says, he appeared to me. And history records this man's life changed in a moment, in a moment. You know, if I didn't have any of this stuff, if I didn't know any of these things to logically give answers to people, and some of you are saying, I can't remember this stuff. I, I, I just can't do that, Jim. Here's what you can do. What I would tell people is this. Um, now, this is me personally. I would say, well, I hated Christians. I really did. I didn't want to be part of you. I thought you were going to ruin all my fun. You're going to take away everything from me that I thought I enjoyed. My family was becoming Christians. I didn't want to be around them anymore because all they're talking about is Jesus. And so I, they got me to go to church one time. And you know my testimony. 
And that night I gave my life to Christ. August 12, 1979. In a moment, the way I viewed life, the way I wanted to live, changed. From all this way into all this thing, all the sin that I was doing before, I said, no more. I'm going to go this way now. What changes a person in a second? And it was a second. What does that? It's the power of God. It's God coming to live in you because the DNA of God now lives in you when you put your faith in Christ. See, I have a testimony. So do you. You may not be able to answer it the way I can answer it, the way some of us can answer it, but you have a testimony. You've got to rehearse that testimony. You've got to know what your testimony is. You've got to be ready to give that testimony because that testimony is potent. You guys know I talked about it before. My father, he was an alcoholic. A lot of my issues come from that. And when my dad got sick, when one night he had a stroke, Veronica, you were at my house that night. You just may not remember, but you were there. We had leadership for the youth ministry, and I had to leave before we even began. Um, 1989. And uh, I got to the hospital. My dad was not a Christian by any means, and he had a stroke in the left side of his body. Couldn't use it couldn't really talk because he was talking real funny. And we're there. And Robbie, you said to me, because we were the only two in the room at that time, you said, Uncle Jim, you got to lead him to the Lord. I remember you said that. And you were urgent in your voice. It's really awkward leading your dad to the Lord. I'll tell you. Even though I'm a pastor, it's a very awkward thing. I said, Dad, you, you got to give your life to Jesus. There's just no choices anymore, Dad. You've got to do it. It's not a game. And I led him to the Lord in that emergency room at Corner Regional. And that guy's life changed. Six hours later, he's got full mobility. Okay, he can talk, everything. But then we found out that he's got colon cancer. He's got six months to live. But I'll never forget on how my dad changed in that moment. Because I walked into his room multiple times when I go visit him at home. And I remember him sitting there looking at, the, you know, he used to have, remember, I'm going to date myself, those little 12-inch black and white TVs he'd have in the room with the antenna, remember those? He had one in his room. And I walk in, he's got, he's sitting there and he's got tears rolling down his eyes. He's watching, remember, people would watch Channel 40? And he says, Jimmy, why don't people love Jesus? How do you answer that? That was a very profound but yet simplistic question. I said, Dad, I don't know. I don't know. See, my dad changed. My dad changed. What changed him? In a moment of time, the power of God the DNA of the Holy Spirit as he put his faith in Jesus. His testimony. You have one. You have one. That your life is different now. And you may not be able to answer all the questions, but you can sure give that testimony of the changes that God has made in your life. 
and that goes deep into the soul of another person. We have been given the great responsibility of being ambassadors for Jesus. What are we going to do with that responsibility? We are part of a kingdom of God on planet Earth. What are we going to do in that kingdom? It's our job to answer the questions of the curious when they ask us. That's what we're supposed to do. You got to be aware. You got to be alert because it's going to come at you. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for giving us, Father, your Son, Jesus, to save us from our sins. Now, you may, whether in this room or watching at home or wherever you're watching from, you may never have put your faith in Christ. But now it's starting to make sense that, okay, it's not a blind faith. It's not a leap in the dark. This is real. There's evidence. And now I've got to make a decision. What am I going to do with this? And maybe just these seeds and this water splashing on you today has convinced you that Jesus is the way, the God-man who came and died on that cross for you and me. Or maybe you've just been double-minded. You're kind of in and out, backslidden, back in and out, in and out. And so you've got to solidify this thing. You've got to sanctify Christ in your heart. Or you'll be talked in and out of anything. You've got to set this thing, get your foundation right. So there's never any questions anymore. That you believe it and that's it. You trust God and that's it. Otherwise, you're open pray to any philosophical persuasion that comes your way that is contrary to the word of God. So I'm going to give you the greatest opportunity of your life to put your faith in Jesus and or to rededicate your life. I'm going to say a prayer. I want everyone in this room to repeat it out loud after me. If you're going to put your faith in Christ or rededicate your life, you repeat it with us here or watching online. This is the greatest decision of your life. Paul said, I gave you what's the first important, most important thing. This is it. God can make your life better here and he can give you a great eternity. So I'm going to say this prayer now. You just put your trust in Jesus as you repeat it. If you're saying this, putting your faith in him for the first time, or rededicating. Everybody say it out loud with me. Here we go. Jesus, thank you for dying for me, for loving me so much that you would die in my place. You would take my punishment for my sin. Thank you. Forgive me of my sins. And I know I'm forgiven of everything. I put my trust in you today. You are my God, my Savior, and my Lord. 
Thank you for saving me. Today I follow you and your teachings for the rest of my life. Now let me pray for you. I pray that you follow Christ and make him number one all the time. That takes effort. I pray that you get into church fellowship regularly. If you're from out of town visiting with friends here or relatives, you find a church back home. You get in there. Get around humans, other Christians. That's a very big New Testament principle. You got to be around humans, Christians. I pray that you get a Bible, get a simple translation. If you don't have one, we have them here in the lobby at where it says welcome, they'll give you a Bible. Free. Read in the New Testament. Stay there for a couple of years so you learn about who you believe. You're a New Testament believer. I pray for you as you're going to be attacked and pulled for the first time you're going to see it in your life that there is there are two different realms fighting the kingdom of God and the domain of darkness. There's going to be a pull at you to go back to sin, but there's also going to be a strong conviction in you to not go that way. Know that the strong conviction in you is more powerful than the domain of darkness. Know that when you put your faith in Christ right now, it says that you died on the cross with Jesus. What do you mean? It means your old nature, the old you, the old DNA of who you are, dead, paralyzed. And you took on the DNA of God, the Holy Spirit. And now you feed it by reading the Word of God, by worshiping, by fellowshipping. You grow. So pretty soon, it's not a fight to stay away from sin. It's just a natural decision now that you're just going to do the right stuff because that's who you are. It's a great way to live. But know that you know that you know that whenever you die, you don't have to fear death because you're going to live forever with God. He's conquered death. That's why we, well, we don't walk around in fear at all, at anything. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. If you need prayer or dedicated your life to Christ, please reach out to us on our social media, on Facebook and Instagram at NBCC Norco, or email us at hello at NBCC.com. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share and subscribe to this podcast.